Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. They call it the cycle of perpetual outrage. That's the name given for the posture all too common in our day and age. It's the phenomenon where so many people driven by political ideologies and personal grievances and then emboldened and enabled sometimes by the internet, they have settled into this constant burning sense of anger at the world around them and specifically at anyone who would dare do or say something that they consider to be offensive. As comedian John Mulaney, one of my personal favorites, puts it, I've been watching the news lately and it seems like everyone everywhere is super mad about everything all of the time. That pretty much sums it up. Uh, Years ago, when Facebook started trotting out its mission statement, which was, and this is not a joke, bringing people together, that statement was met with near universal mockery up and down the line because while their products do indeed help people connect with each other, it seems far more often to set people against each other. Maybe their motto could have been something more like Facebook, there's always more to be offended by. One Twitter user sums up this cycle of perpetual outrage really well when he posts to the platform every single morning, at least last I checked, okay, Twitter, what are we angry about today? In many ways, this is the cultural climate that we live in now. There's always something to be angry about, offended by, outraged at. And it's not really specific to any one group of people. The anger and offense comes from religious people and non-religious people, Republicans, Democrats, independents, young people, old people, all races, all genders, all backgrounds. We have a society that sometimes seems to run on outrage, which I think would be a better slogan than America runs on Duncan, too. Sometimes America runs on outrage. And it's not just outright rage. Sometimes it's not that obvious. So psychologists sometimes distinguish between people who rage out and people who rage in. I don't know if you've heard this terminology before. In other words, some people just have this slow-burning, inward sense of resentment and bitterness rather than outright obvious outburst of anger. Some people aren't perpetually outraged. They're more like perpetually bothered at everything around them. But the inclination towards being offended in one form or another is now seemingly everywhere in our society. But while that posture may seem unique to our day and age, it actually isn't, not at all. Arguably, the great-great-great-grandparents of outrage culture in the Bible were a group of people called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. If you're newer to the Bible, the Pharisees were basically the religious elite of Jesus's day. And nearly every time that we come across the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the Bible, they are offended, frustrated, or outraged by something. 
They're always bothered by something people were doing or not doing or doing the wrong way or some combination of all of those things. The Pharisees were angry at a lot of people a lot of the time. In their minds, nobody was as serious about obedience to God as they were. Nobody was as serious about holiness as they were. So they ended up finding plenty of things to be bothered about in their day and age. Today's passage is a story about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their latest outrage, the latest thing that they were offended by. This one was directed at the disciples of Jesus and really at Jesus himself. So let's take a look, see what we can learn from this story, starting in Matthew 15, verse 1. We'll just walk through the story line by line. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came up to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? We'll come back to that term in a second. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay, for context here, the Pharisees are not bringing this up just because they're germaphobes or something. Or maybe they are, I don't know, I've never met them. But I don't think that's why they're bringing it up here. The hand washing that they are talking about was not what you and I hopefully do before a meal. It, it was actually a meticulous ceremonial type of hand washing that was laid out in the Pharisees' oral tradition, or in their language, the tradition of the elders. Basically, as we just said, the Pharisees were very serious about obedience to the Torah, the laws and the commands in the first five books of the Bible. So serious about it, in fact, that they added 1,500 additional commands to it to make sure that they didn't accidentally disobey the original 613. Now, I don't know about you, 613 sounds like plenty to me. I don't feel like we need to add to that, but they thought that 1,500 more needed to be added. Those additional commands, the 1,500, were called the oral tradition or the tradition of the elders. So here's an example of how it would work using the example in this passage. The Torah said that you became ritually unclean if you came into contact with certain unclean things over the course of a day. So things like a dead body or certain types of animals or an open wound. So the Pharisees were obviously very sure to avoid all of that. They didn't want to become ritually unclean. But their thinking was that there was really no way of knowing if you unwittingly came into contact with some of those things during a typical day. So who's to say you didn't walk by a house that had a dead body inside? Or who's to say you weren't talking with someone over the course of a day who had an open wound under their clothing and you didn't know about it? So it's possible in their minds that you could become accidentally ritually unclean. So they had this whole hand-washing ritual that they would participate in before a meal where they would make sure that they addressed any accidental impurity that they had encountered that day. And here in Matthew 15, they want to know why Jesus' disciples don't participate in that hand-washing. And in fact, they're very offended that the disciples don't participate in it, such that they travel on foot all the way from Jerusalem to pick this theological fight and express their offense at Jesus. That is what they're asking Jesus about in the passage. Jesus responds, verse 3, Jesus replied, and why do you, Pharisees, break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? 
For God said, honor your father and mother. That's straight out of the Ten Commandments in the Bible, if you're unfamiliar. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. That's also in the Old Testament law. Verse 5, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is, quote, devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So Jesus responds to their pointed question with a pointed question of his own. They ask him why his disciples break their oral tradition. He asks them why their oral tradition makes them break God's commands. So Jesus here goes straight for the kill with the Pharisees. Because remember, what they cared most about, what the Pharisees and teachers of the law cared most about was obedience to God's law. So Jesus says, why are you letting your oral tradition make you disobedient to God's law? He just pulls the self-righteous rug right out from underneath him. Then Jesus gives an example to illustrate what he's talking about. He reminds them that the scriptures teach them to, quote, honor their father and mother, to care for their parents, to provide for them, help them, treat them with honor and dignity. So if your parents were aging and in need of assistance, the expectation was that you would honor them by helping them in whatever way that you could, including using your own money and assets in order to care for them, similar to what many of us would do for aging parents today. But the Pharisees had found a way out of having to do that. They invented this designation for their money called Corbin, or more literally in English, devoted to God, Basically, they said that if some of their assets were designated as devoted to God, they had legal justification for not using that money to help their parents. So think of it, if you will, if you know what this is, like a sinful escrow account. That's basically what was happening. So the Pharisees would put some of their money into this account or this designation, and then when their parents were in need, the Pharisees would go, you know, I would really love to help you. I really wish that I could, but, but the money that I would use to help you, mom and dad, it's already devoted to God. So I, I, I can't take what I devoted to God and use it to help you guys. That would be dishonoring to God. So sorry, you'll have to figure it out yourself. It was this very sneaky way of weaseling out of what the Bible clearly taught them to do. But here's the other thing. That devoted to God money went to the temple treasury. Who do you think helped manage the money in the temple treasury? The Pharisees. So not only were they not helping their family with the money, they were often benefiting from that money themselves. So it's not a one-to-one, but it would be sort of like if you came to me and you needed financial assistance, and then I really quickly went and tied the large sum of money to City Church, told you that I couldn't help, and then at the end of the day told you that that money from City Church uh, built me a really nice state-of-the-art new office. It'd be kind of like that. So it's this way of getting out of what God taught them to do, but it was also a way of benefiting themselves. In fact, other places in the scriptures, it actually tells us that much of the Pharisees' behavior was driven by a secret love of money. So this is what the Pharisees were doing. 
Jesus cites that whole backwards practice that they were caught up in, and he says to them, essentially, hey, you're using noble, spiritual-sounding language to justify doing something that is in direct contradiction to the Scriptures. You're doing something blatantly sinful, but you're trying to make it appear righteous to others. These Pharisees were just as greedy, just as sinful, just as unloving as other people were. They just used their oral tradition as a guise for it all. This is the very definition of hypocrisy, which is exactly where Jesus takes it next. Verse 7, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. In other words, it's not true worship at all. Their teachings are nearly human rules. Sounds like a spot-on assessment of what the Pharisees are doing in this passage, right? So next, Jesus is going to pivot and make all of this a teaching moment for the crowd. So at this point, the Pharisees have likely left. Jesus is wanting to use the Pharisees as a prime example of what not to do, how not to live. Here's what he says, verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. So real quickly here, he's building off of the hand-washing idea, right? So the Pharisees washed their hands because they thought that if they didn't, something they ate would defile them because their hands were already unclean. But Jesus says, hey, what goes into someone's mouth doesn't defile them. What comes out of their mouth that is what defiles them. So that's an idea Jesus is going to unpack further here in just a few moments. For now, let's keep following the dialogue. Verse 12, then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Uh, you've got to love the disciples, right? Like love them in like a real like bless their heart kind of way. Uh, they asked Jesus, Jesus, did you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? And you've got to think that Jesus at this point is going, yeah, I'm aware. Uh, I'm aware that they were offended. Also, it's the Pharisees. They're pretty much offended at everything anyone does all of the time. So yes, I had an inkling that when I directly challenged everything they believed, they might have been offended by it. But I will say, give the disciples a little credit here. They don't know what we know, right? They're not reading this in retrospect. They don't know everything that's about to happen. So they're just witnessing Jesus critiquing the spiritual authorities of their day. The, the people that everybody else followed and looked up to as what a model of obedience to God looked like. So the disciples are just trying to ensure that Jesus realizes what he has just said and what he has just done. But Jesus fully understands. He responds with this, verse 13. He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. In other words, don't follow the Pharisees. They look like they know what they're talking about. They sound like they know what they're talking about, but they don't. And just really quickly here, if I could just offer a word of advice. Just because somebody acts very spiritual does not mean they're spiritually mature. 
I've seen this over and over again. Sometimes we assume that because somebody uses spiritual language, that they are spiritually mature. If that was the case, Jesus would have never challenged the Pharisees. So, Jesus says to the disciples, don't follow the Pharisees. They don't actually know what they're talking about. Leave them alone, God will sort it out. Verse 15, Peter said, explain the parable to us. Now, here's what's funny about this request from Peter. Uh, Most commentators on the book of Matthew point out that at this point in the story, Jesus hasn't actually told a parable. (laughs) Peter just thinks that Jesus told a parable because Peter is so confused by it. So, so Peter goes, uh, can you explain the riddle that you uh, mentioned earlier? I'm just very curious about what that meant exactly. So Jesus' response to Peter even confirms that his words were not intended to be confusing. Verse 16, are you still so dull? <laughs> Top five things you don't want to hear from Jesus if you're one of the disciples, right? Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. And here's, here comes the important explanation for what was said earlier, verse 17. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So Jesus here is trying to reorient people's understanding of sin. But he's using the framework of uncleanness and defilement, since that's the language that people were familiar with from the Old Testament law. So the Pharisees, and apparently a lot of other people at the time, believed that someone became defiled primarily from the outside in, right? So you eat unclean food, you touch unclean things, you associate with unclean people, and as a result, they believe that that made you unclean. But Jesus says here that there is a much more dangerous type of defilement and uncleanness that you should be concerned about, and it's the kind that comes from the inside out, a kind of impurity that has nothing to do with what you eat or who you spend time around or where you go. Rather, it has to do with what exists in the depths and recesses of your own heart. That is where true uncleanness comes from. And I'll just tell you, uh, Jesus' language for unpacking all of this is actually quite graphic in the original language. Uh, In verse 17, when he says that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, that phrase out of the body is literally the word for a sewer drain. He's using it to talk about the literal process of your body discharging waste. So he says essentially, everything you eat goes into the body and then becomes sewage to be discarded. But he continues, what actually defiles isn't that stuff. True defilement, true sewage, in other words, is what comes out of your heart. (laughs) Quite graphic. (laughs) Jesus was not super family friendly at times. So sin in Jesus' mind is not first something out there in the world for you to avoid. Sin originates in your heart and gets revealed in what you say and in how you act. 
and the Pharisees fit right into this framework from Jesus. Because Jesus has just exposed them as people who are very diligent at avoiding the outward appearance of sin, but not very diligent in addressing the true problem, the greed, selfishness, and lack of love that has a deep hold on their life from within. They've spent all this time and energy avoiding even accidental uncleanness, and in the meantime have given in completely to the uncleanness that is in their hearts. And that, Jesus says, is where the problem truly lies, in your heart. And no doubt, the Pharisees' inability to perceive all of this about themselves is what's behind their constant outrage and offense at everything around them. When you live life like the Pharisees, you get the result that the Pharisees got. When you see the world like they saw it, you end up taking the posture that they took to nearly everything and everyone around them. You end up consumed by the cycle of perpetual outrage and offense. You end up super bothered by everything nearly all of the time, just like the Pharisees were. That is the result of this way of life. So, with all of that unpacked, here's what I thought we'd do with the remainder of our time. Here on Sundays, we normally spend our time learning from Jesus how to live, right? How to structure all of our lives as a response to the good news of the gospel. But today, I thought, just for fun, we could switch it up a little bit and do things in reverse. In this passage, Jesus uses the Pharisees as a negative teaching example, an example of how not to live. So taking that cue from Jesus in the passage, we are going to learn from the Pharisees this morning how not to live. So here is what I have affectionately titled, How to Be Offended by Everything, a Step-by-Step Guide from the Pharisees. <laughs> this should be fun. You guys ready? You guys up for it? All right. Three people are going to love this. <laughs> All right. How to be offended by everything. Step one, make your rules the rules. Make your rules the rules. So remember, at the beginning of the passage, the Pharisees had taken their oral tradition and they had emphasized its importance to a level where it did not belong, to the point that they functionally equated their tradition with the scriptures themselves. So in their mind, breaking the oral tradition was every bit as bad as violating the teaching of the Bible, which is why they are so bothered by the disciples and by Jesus breaking their oral tradition. They had made their personal rules the rules for everybody. And there is a way to do this even if you're not a Pharisee and even if you do not live by the oral tradition. So I'll give you an example. I have learned personally over the years that there are certain TV shows and movies that I just personally have no business watching. They're not blatantly sinful things. They're not X-rated things. They're just things that I, as a 34-year-old man, do not need to watch. They're not good for my heart. They're not good for my mind. They're not good for my contentment in Jesus. They're just things that I personally do not watch. I have a personal rule not to watch those shows and movies. But here's what I don't get to do. I can't expect other people not to watch those things just because I don't. I don't get to make my rules the rules. 
And if I do expect other people to play by my personal rules, I will find myself perpetually frustrated when they don't see things like I do. But that is what we sometimes do as followers of Jesus, right? So we start believing that Christians shouldn't go to certain places or do certain things or partake in certain activities. Or inversely, we start to believe that all Christians should do certain things and participate in certain activities. And those things may be personal rules and personal convictions for us individually, but that doesn't mean they get to be rules that we hold everyone else to. Uh, one way that I see this come up a lot is in how Christians express certain expectations of the church that they attend. So early on at City Church, we had a guy come around who firmly believed that the only thing that small groups should do together is that they should read through books of the Bible line by line. In his mind, that was the only thing that small groups should do when they got together. Now, I think that's a great thing for groups to do. Many of our groups have done that. Many of our groups are doing that as we speak. It's a great thing to do. But I don't know that that's the only thing that our life groups should ever be doing. If anything, there are actually some places in Acts that seem to say that studying Scripture was just one of several things that the early church did when they got together in groups. But in this guy's mind, the only thing that groups should be doing when they got together is reading the Bible line by line. So what would happen is that every time he would get together with his group and they spent time doing something other than reading the Bible line by line, he would get more and more frustrated by it, by the moment. More and more offended and appalled that they weren't doing the one thing he felt like groups should be doing. And eventually he got so frustrated that he had to leave our church because he just couldn't deal with how bothered he was by it. But it all started with him making his rules the rules. He took a personal conviction that he had, and then he expected everybody else to live up to it at all times. So just as a practical tip on this, uh, if you find yourself regularly growing frustrated or resentful or outright angry at other people, and especially at other Christians, over anything, I would recommend that you pause, take a step back for a second, and ask a very important question. And the question is, this thing that I'm expecting everybody else to do, it, is that my rule or is that the rule? Is that a personal conviction or is that something that the scriptures clearly teach that Christians should be doing or not doing? Because if it's the rule, if, if other followers of Jesus that you're in relationship with are not doing something that the scriptures clearly teach us to do, well, that's when you start praying through, how do I helpfully engage them on it and talk to them about it? But if it's your rule, if it's just your interpretation of something that the Bible says, or if it's just a personal conviction that you have about the way that life should be lived, well, then it may not be their fault that you're angry. It might be your fault that you're angry. Because you expect other people to live up to a rule that they never agreed to and don't have to agree to. First way to guarantee that you're offended by everything is to make your rules the rules. Second way to be offended by everything is this. Use noble sounding language to justify your behavior. Use noble sounding language to justify your behavior. 
So the second thing that we see in this passage in Matthew 15, one that Jesus points out in the Pharisees, is that they use noble sounding language to justify behavior that was completely at odds with what the scriptures taught. They use this very respectable idea, Corbin, devoted to God, to justify not honoring their father and mother, something that the Bible clearly taught them to do. So sometimes we do this too. Uh, Probably the most basic example of it that I've seen is when we use language like God told me to do something, when what we really mean is I want to do this and I don't want anyone to challenge me on it. God told me to date this person. God told me to break up with this person. God opened a door to take this job, move to this city, buy this house, buy that car, you name it. And listen, sometimes God does speak to us on those types of things, absolutely. But I also think sometimes we use that language as a way to simply justify whatever it is that we want to do at the moment. I've also heard people do the inverse of this too. So people will say things like, well, God would never ask me to blank. God would never ask me to deny myself. God would never ask me to give up something that makes me happy. God would never ask me to do something that makes me uncomfortable. And that can sound really noble when we say it. But then you look at the scriptures and you realize God actually called people to do all of those things. And and probably plenty of more things that make us uncomfortable too, right? That's using noble sounding language to justify things at odds with the scriptures. Um, I've seen it one other way too that I just think is worth mentioning. This is a newer one to me just in the last five to 10 years. I've noticed that people have started using uh, noble-sounding counseling terminology to justify things at odds with the Bible. So you'll tell somebody that they need to go work through conflict with, with another follower of Jesus. They need to go work through some sort of tension that is there. And they will say that they can't go do that because that person is an unsafe person. Now, let me be very clear here. I'm not against counseling. I have done counseling. I think it's incredibly helpful. And, and there is such a thing as an unsafe person. There are abusive people that we should not be forced to go have a conversation with. Absolutely. But sometimes people will use language like that to just describe any person that makes us feel uncomfortable. Or better yet, to, to avoid talking to someone that we just don't want to work through conflict with somebody that maybe has engaged us on sin in the past and we didn't like it when they did that. And sometimes people will use counseling terminology to get out of doing things that the scriptures clearly call them as a follower of Jesus to do. So there's all sorts of ways that people do this. There's all sorts of ways that it plays out. But I think we need to be careful any time that we are using noble-sounding language from the Bible or from outside of the Bible to justify things that the scriptures clearly condemn or to get out of doing things that the scriptures clearly teach us to do. When we do that, we find ourselves in exactly the same position as the Pharisees who use noble sounding language to excuse their behavior. And if we do that, we will find ourselves continually offended and outraged because we have excused ourselves from listening and obeying, 
while simultaneously expecting everyone else to listen and obey perfectly, which sets up our third and final way to be offended by everything, which is to see everything else as the problem. To see everything else as the problem. So as Jesus highlights with his non-parable about where sin comes from, the Pharisees thought that sin was mainly out there. Sin was out there in other people or other things or other places. And so they believed that if they could just personally avoid all of those people and places and things, that they could remain unstained by sin themselves. The problem was that the sin was within their own hearts all along. It was within them. And washing your hands cannot cleanse your heart. So the final way to ensure that you remain offended at everything is to decide that everyone else and everything else except you are the problem. Then there is always plenty to be outraged at. We do this uh, when we think that we only did what we did because of the situation or circumstances that we were in. So I wouldn't have said that to my spouse if my spouse wasn't so hard to be around. I wouldn't be so miserable at work if my job was a better place to work. Well, I'm only short with people because of all the pressure that I'm under right now. Listen, there may be some truth to all of those things, but when we take that posture, we fail to realize that the sin being revealed in our life originated in our own heart. Not in our situation, not in our spouse's behavior or tendencies, not in our job, not in our circumstances, It originated in our heart. Circumstances and situations in our lives may expose our sin, but they do not create it. One of my favorite marriage books that we use a lot of times in premarital counseling around here illustrates this concept like this. It says, when you squeeze an orange, what comes out of that orange? Not a trick question. Orange juice, right? Not apple juice, not grape juice, not anything else. When you squeeze an orange, orange juice comes out. In the same way, when life squeezes us, presses us, puts us in difficult circumstances or situations, what comes out of us in those moments is actually what was in our hearts all along. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. We don't get to turn around and blame the situations or the other people. If anything, those things did us a favor by helping us see more clearly what was in our heart all along. But if we, like the Pharisees, choose to think that our hearts are always pure and that the problem is everything and everyone else around us, we will be continually offended and outraged at other things in our life that expose our sin to the light will constantly point our finger at everything and everyone else rather than taking those opportunities to honestly examine what's in our own heart. That was the problem with the Pharisees. So there we have it. Step-by-step guide to being offended at everything. If you want to follow our culture's lead in always being offended, always being frustrated, always being outraged, those are some pretty good ways to make it happen. That's how the Pharisees did it. That's how you could do it too. But I am assuming that because many of us are followers of Jesus, that's not exactly our life goal. 
We don't want to be the people that are always offended at everything. I'm assuming that many of us would rather embody the love and the compassion and the peace that Jesus offers and that Jesus embodies. So let me give you what I think is a surefire way to achieve that posture. The good news is that this approach to life is much simpler than a constant life of outrage. In fact, I think we could sum it up in one word. That word is confession. Confession. If you want to chart a better way forward than the cycle of perpetual outrage and offense, the way to arrive there is to be motivated by the good news of Jesus to confess your own sin. Now, I know for some of us, that word confession might conjure up some odd images, just depending on if you grew up in particular church traditions. So let me be very clear about what I mean by the word confession. Here's what I mean. I mean the practice of regularly acknowledging your sins, faults, and failures to God and to other followers of Jesus. The practice of regularly acknowledging your sins, faults, and failures to God and to other followers of Jesus. That is what the word confession means in the Bible. It is regularly taking the sewage that is present in the recesses of our own heart and bringing it out into the light for others to see it. Not hiding it, not sugarcoating it, not blaming it on others or your situation, confessing it. The scriptures teach that if we have been transformed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will regularly practice confession. And here's why. I hope we understand that if we are followers of Jesus, we have already been outed as sinners. That's not a secret about us. That's kind of what happens when we accept Jesus, when we decide to follow Jesus. We are saying, I am incapable of doing this myself. I need Jesus to forgive my sin and make me new. That is what we're saying. So when we choose to be honest with God and others about our sin, we are not telling anybody anything they don't already know about us. They already knew that that's who we were. They might not have known the particulars, but they already knew that that's who we are. What we are doing when we confess, though, is aligning ourselves with reality. We're taking time to remember that I am no better than anybody else. We're remembering that our sin is simultaneously the biggest problem in our life and the thing that we have the most power to do something about. That is how you break the cycle of perpetual offense. If you are regularly acknowledging and confessing your own sin, you will find it harder and harder to be outraged at everything else. One, because you're acknowledging regularly that you are your biggest problem. But two, because even when someone else legitimately wrongs us or does something wrong, confession helps us view them with compassion rather than anger with understanding rather than outrage. It makes us more inclined to see them as a fellow sinner with us rather than someone that we're better than. It is very, very difficult to be perpetually angry at everyone else while simultaneously being honest about all of your own sin. The people I've known in my life who are the most consistently outraged and offended also tend to be the people that confess their sin the least. The times in my life where I am the most outraged and offended at everything else 
are usually the times where I am confessing the least. Gospel-motivated confession is the antidote to outrage and offense. So if you find yourself perpetually frustrated and offended at everything and everyone else around you, or more importantly, if you just want to become more like Jesus, and I hope we all do, do this. This week, find a way to be brutally honest with God and with others about your sin. Bring all the sewage out of your own heart and expose it to the light and watch the perpetual outrage start to melt away in turn. And I'll just add this too. Uh, if you've never done confession before, if you don't know where to start when it comes to confessing your own sin, uh, start by confessing the outrage itself. The scriptures teach us that things like bitterness and resentment and rage are sinful in and of themselves. So even if you're not aware of anything else in your life that you need to confess, start there. Say, I've got this outrage, this offense, this anger in my heart at these types of things, and that's not okay. One wonders how different Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees would have been if they saw their own sin as the biggest problem. I wonder what a difference that would have made in their lives and in their interactions with others. And I wonder what difference it would make in us as well. Jesus has made all of this possible through his life, death, and resurrection. If you're a follower of Jesus, your sin has already been addressed. It's already been taken care of. There's no reason not to be honest about it. So let's let Jesus guide us into the fullness of life that he's made possible by his spirit, by acknowledging and confessing our sin. Let me pray to that end. Father, um, we thank you for the cross. God, we thank you that um, on that day you took care of everything that needed to be taken care of in us. God, we thank you that on that day you made a way for us to live in relationship with you, for our sin to be forgiven, for it to be atoned for. And God, I, I thank you that in light of that, um, we've all already been outed as sinners. We have nothing to hide. We have nothing to gain from hiding. And the only thing we miss out on is total and complete healing, is becoming who you want us to be. So God, in, in this room, a, a room this size with this many people, um, it is very likely that some of us are just slowly dying inside because we don't feel like anybody knows us. We don't feel like we have relational intimacy with anybody. We feel lonely. We feel isolated. And so much of that can, can be outside of our control. It can be due to circumstances. It can be due to different things in our life. But God, I, I know that in a room this size, no doubt, a lot of it too 
could be that we don't feel like we have the freedom to be honest about our sin, to be honest about the ways where we've failed, where we've fallen short, where we haven't been who you called us to be. And so God, the the one word that I I just want to pray over each and every person in this room is freedom. God, would you help us not to be scared of confession? Would you help us not to be fearful of sharing the deepest parts of us with you and with others? This is the book of 1 John puts it, when we confess our sins, we have fellowship with you and we have fellowship with each other. And so no doubt some of the reason that some of us feel so distant from you, feel so distant from other people is because we're not being honest about who we are and what we're struggling with. And so God, I, I pray for gospel freedom over each and every person in this room. However enslaving the sin is, however dark the secret, God, whatever it is, it is not too great for your blood shed on the cross. It is not too great for what you've made possible through Jesus. And so God, would you just, would you set us free? Would you lead us into more freedom? Would you help us to grasp and live out of everything that you've made possible? We ask this in your name. Amen.